always ready. I was born ready. You have been born ready. Uh, I know that. Well, not only a client, a great friend of the business, Gerard King is going to talk about five steps to crisis leadership. Do we need to know about this topic and communications and leadership? I think we do. What a better time. I think this will help you in your interviewing. It'll help you with your perspective in today's very tense communication environment. I think we've gotten recently good news, Gerard, about people coming, coming back to work, maybe offices opening up, mm -hmm. social distancing being relaxed. I hope we look back at this time mm -hmm. as the past, but I think we're making some progress. You are here to help us, and uh, let's take that positive step forward. What a great treat we have for you today, Gerard King. Take it away, sir. All right. So when I think in terms of the crisis, John says, you look at it as something that we're transcending out of, it's something in the past. I look at this as something to prepare you for the next one. Because there may be another crisis. It may not be COVID related, but it may be a crisis. And what you learn in this is what most of us learn that we weren't ready for. Or not COVID, but a crisis. And, and it looks, if I look around here on the pictures, many of you guys are, let's just say I teach classes at a university. So I don't see any of you in here college age, so I can say some things you actually actually get. So for instance, uh, how think about this, you all. How many times did we see movies throughout our lives about outbreak, viruses, things, but we never thought we'd live it? We never thought we would actually live it. We saw it, it entertained us, and people would always say, that's spooky, but we never thought we'd live it. Guess what? We're living in it now. But most importantly, it is a crisis that we're living in. Now, Wikipedia's definition of crisis is this, is an event or period that will lead or may lead to an unstable or dangerous situation affecting an individual, group, or our society. Sound familiar? That's exactly what we have going on right now. And if you think in terms of crises, so I don't want to concentrate so much on COVID, but let's give you an example. COVID, what is COVID? COVID is a worldwide crisis. Uh, another crisis just came up here within the past year. Russia hacking the U.S. Uh, uh, community systems, technology and community uh, computer systems. That is a U.S. government crisis. The Exxon Valdez oil spill in the Gulf. What was that? That was an environmental crisis. What happened in 2007 and 2008 when Wall Street basically collapsed? It was an economic and financial crisis. But here's what we do know. Crisis has a domino effect, and it can touch all aspects of our lives, depending upon what type of it is. And then you can have individual crises like Wells Fargo, when they had employees who were creating fraudulent accounts, customers' names, to collect high commissions. That was for them, primarily a public relations crisis, but it was one that they had to deal with. So we have these things come up in our lives, whether it be, whether it affects the country, the world, our organization, our region of the country, they are crisis. And as I thought about this and John asked me, you know, what would I want to speak about? And I said, you know what, this is a good time to talk about how do we deal with that? And obviously we don't have a lot of time, but I said, you know what, let me come up with just a few things that would actually help people to think about how to deal with crisis. And I came up with five things I thought about, and this, these are things I pulled out of my background, experience, and training, things that, that were, are important to me, that I see are ways to deal with the crisis. The first one would be is to seek order rather than control. In a crisis situation, the first thing that kicks in is a human response. It, human response will actually be to hunker down, 
I'm going to take control and I'm going to make sure these things happen because I'm going to get these things done. Uh, as one guy used to joke, we used to joke with one of my supervisors, you're going to make decisions to make sure that we employees don't screw you up to get that next promotion. In crisis mode, these things all are running through people's mind. And I'm going to tell you who, react, who responds the worst to crisis. People who are natural micromanagers. They'll actually be worse than the, the other people who are not micromanagers. But guess what? In a crisis situation, you can take people who are not typically known to be micromanagers, and they can result to something very similar to that. What you endeavor to do is to actually take order. Order means you know what you do supposed to do as a leader. The people who work for you, the other leaders, they know what they're supposed to do. Subsequently, you're executing a master plan and everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Now, as a leader, one thing you know is this. Make the decisions that you're supposed to make as a leader. But delegate the other decisions to people who are qualified to make them. That is their job. That's what they're getting paid for. So when you think of it, it's in terms of you utilizing the team. I think of when I think about utilizing the team, guys, some of you may have heard this quote before. It's from Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc was the guy who made McDonald's a, a, a worldwide household name. Ray Kroc stated this. I would rather have 10% of 100 people's effort than 100% of my own. Listen to that for a minute. This is in a crisis situation when it kicks in and your nat our natural response says, I got to get these things done. I got to get done. Well, guess what? You have to resist the temptation to try to do everything alone. And you have to be the leader and say, you know what? I have a team and I'm going to utilize a team to get these things done. The second thing you should do, seek facts. Utilize the organization's subject matter experts. You have people who work in the organization who are subject matter experts in various fields. Utilize them to your advantage. Now, when I say this, think about this. Some people work in organizations that are international. That means you may have, I refer to these as assets. You will have assets not only uh, working in the continental U.S., possibly abroad. And some of these assets may be able to help you as far as providing information. And I'll give you an example. Experiences. Do you have people who are working for your organization in foreign countries internationally that may have experienced something like this before? If you don't reach out to them or you don't put a net out, a SOS, asking for that, you may never know that. Another group of people who would actually be instrumentally veterans. Some of them have traveled all around and experienced all different types of things. What these people are, they're assets. They're assets. In essence, if you think about it, uh, they're tools. You have a toolbox. You have tools that you may not be utilizing to get the job done. So reach out to your various subject matter experts to get factual information. Now, this is something some of you may wonder why I put this in here, but I'm going to tell you why. Carefully vet your facts and information when it comes from places. And I'll give you an example uh, to include the media, internet news, uh, cable news networks. If it's something big enough, you're going to have facts that are coming from all different types of places. The problem is it may not be valid. It could be partial truths or it could be slanted for political purposes or propaganda. Now, the reason I have to say that is we're living in a different time. People in my age group 
a lot of them can tell you who the CBS, ABC, and NBC, even in, order, even in news anchors are. Many millennials cannot. The reason they cannot is not the fact they're not informed. They get their news through different mediums. I spent five years working for the federal government in public information and public relations, dealing with the national, to include sometimes international, national, regional, local media. And what I found to be the case is we had to do various things because to get messages out because different age groups got their news different ways. So it's strange to actually watch a news where I'm actually was interviewed and they talk to me and I'm on camera and I tell them what this is, this, what we have, this, that, whatever. And when it comes out later on the news, they only show a portion of what I said and then they give a report. It's actually incorrect. So vet your facts, seek facts, vet the information, know what you have that is valid. Leaders cannot make good decisions based on flawed information. Third, explain how the organization is doing in a crisis. Transparency. Be open with people. Uh, articulate what the organizational strategy is. Let people know what you're doing. Is there a method madness? Is there a plan? People want to hear this. And when it's coming from the leaders, it's one of the kind of things you look at and you know that it's coming from my leader. It's the gospel. Give updates as often as you can. Think You all think about this. What do you see happen on TV when you have a national crisis, a shooting or an event or something big happens? Now you see the the law enforcement agencies, the government, the mayor, whatever. What do you see them do? They give updates. They're trying to provide information. Leaders must give updates and provide information to their organization. Because if they don't, here's what I, one of the things I can tell you is by doing it, you establish credibility with people. And now you build trust with them. And now they will listen to what you say, they will follow what you say. If you do not tell your story or you do not put the information out there, this is what I've learned from public relations. Somebody else will. And it might not be the way you want it told. Now, when I say someone else will, that can be an employee. That can be employees accessing social media. That could be the news media or print media. But if you're actually keeping your people in the loop and you're educating them, as well as educating the rest about the situation, that is what we call in the media, in, in public relations, is getting in front of the story or getting a handle of the story. Where you do not want to be is on the back end. Now you're doing damage control. So give updates. When we think in terms of law enforcement, and uh, Mr. Felton knows this, one of the things that we would always do is to the people who are actually conducting the operations, we would do daily briefing to get everybody, as we refer in the Army, to the, on the same sheet of music. Everybody's briefed and everybody's updated as what we could do. From that briefing, they would make a determination. Now, what is it we can, what, what information can we provide to the public? Not what information we can keep from the public, but what can we tell them? It's the same with the crisis. From a leader's perspective, you have to get in it and you have to educate people and let them know what's going on. The fourth thing that we'll talk about is being visible and present. We can't do, a leader cannot do what an ostrich does, sticks his head in the sand. He has to be there. He has to be visible. First of all, he has to let people know that he's accessible. He or she is accessible. I'm a decision maker. 
you have access to me. You can get in contact with me. And you can get in contact with other decision makers that report to me. This also is a way of, of letting people know what's going on. If they can see you, that's one of the things that it helps them versus someone high now. Um, my experience is when leaders are stressed and they don't handle the situation real well, they don't want to be seen. They don't want that. And they don't want to be accessible. That is counterproductive. And when they're out there and they're being seen, this is what must tra transpire. They must be calm. They're the calm in the storm. If the leader is walking around with their hair on fire, guess what everybody else is doing? The leader has to be the person that puts everybody else at ease. Now, not falsely, realistically, if there's grounds for concern, the leader lets them know that. But there's a way to do it. Even that can be done calm and controlled. How do you deal with this situation? And you educate people on it. And they feed off of you. You know what? This is not looking good. But I see Heather's not worried. And she's telling us we've got a game plan, trusting us, and we're going to get on top of it. And I believe her. She's been transparent. She's told us everything that she could tell us. And she's been present. She's told her people to be present. Everybody's, we're looking at things. We feel like part of the team, not us and them. And once you get through this crisis, there's a fifth stage that I'm going to put in here. And I call it managing the new normal. Once you go through the crisis, there's a high probability you will not go back to business as usual. There will be changes managing the new normal. Um, I refer to, and I'm going to use, refer to a crisis as a miniature war. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? There's always casualties of war. What type of casualties are we talking about? Now, we're not talking about life and death here, but I'll give you an example. COVID came, actual situation. COVID came, and as a result of COVID, we had to restructure our organization. We had to change our operations, not restructure. We had to alter our operations. So we sent people home to get away out of the office. Now, when we get them home, one of my main people who was one of my best performers, guess what? Is one of my worst working from home. That is not a situation this person calls. It's not a situation that, you know, we had to deal with. But I didn't know it, and neither did she when we sent her home. Now, this actually happened to one of my clients that I'm telling you about. So as a result of sending this person home, they could not function at home. It just wasn't working out. And she really became a casualty of COVID. This is some of the things that happened. Um, in the wars, when we think about in the military, what happens in the wars? When You've heard this, when people come back from wars, the battle scars, the injuries, the PTSD. What do they do? What do we do with them? Because they're casualties of the crisis. Then we try to get them help. As a leader, leaders must be in tune with their people. Guess what? Some people may end up being casualties of this. People you may be able to save, figure out. And there's something else too. I have actually this come from clients that I coach. I am burnt out on COVID, this COVID crisis, the situation, what I'm dealing with. Some of these people will probably be really prime candidates for counseling if you had it internally to speak with someone. But if you're not in tune with your people, you don't pick up on that. People aren't machines. We're human beings, flesh and blood, breathing. Therefore, we have human being flaws. 
As a result, I've seen them from real wars in the military, but now we're seeing them in a, in a bigger, uh, in a literal sense, from casualties of COVID. How are they adapting? How are they working? How does a great employee go to be one of your worst? It was because of the COVID situation that they got put in where they had to work from home. It didn't work out. And some people have situations dealing with home life or whatever, work-life balance. It really becomes an issue for some people now that they're at home with the children and the three dogs versus being able to get away from them and come to the office. How does the leader deal with that new normal? Do you find a way to help salvage good talent? Or do you find a way to be a good leader and find out for some of these people, it may not be for them any longer? Help them figure that out if that is the case. That's not firing people. That's actually adapting to the new normal is the way I look at it. And they may find something else somewhere that may work for them. But all of these different things are potentially what I talk about when I, when I talk about the, the casualties of the crisis of the war. Another thing that must happen after the crisis, we refer to them in the Army as AARs. Uh, John, you know what I'm talking about? After action review. Uh, and Mr. Felton, you know what those are, after action reviews. This is where you sit down when the smoke has settled and we can all sit down with cool, cool calm and collected now and talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. What happened? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? What did we learn from this? What, what, what can we take to use for the next crisis? And as a result, you actually establish uh, a situation with your, with your unit and make it more functional. I like to refer to it as make it more fluid. Now they're thinking about all these things and you can see it. And, and AAR is what they are not. They're not overly critical. They're just fact-based. I don't go into one and say, John O'Connor, you know, you really sucked on this particular part of this endeavor. No, I would be more apt to say, well, when we looked at this part of the, this operation, we didn't do that well. And here's some things that we get right. And here are some things that we can go and do from this point forward. Notice I said we. I never said he or John. Because that implies it was him by himself. I implied we because it's we. It's all of us together. It's not finger pointing. This is a chance to actually show how we can work together, how we can improve. But if we don't talk about the ugly, the things that need to be improved, it is not a valid after action review. Finally, when you think in terms of this too, with that managing the crisis, think about how to get prepared for the next crisis. Things in it. Now, will you know what it is? No, you're not. But you can put steps in place to say, if a crisis arises again, these are some things, we, some basic things we know that we need to do to deal with the situation much better than we did with the COVID. And now you can get people, we used to refer to this, commence this to muscle memory. If you get it to muscle memory, these are things you would do automatically without thinking. It comes to you. And that's where you want to get them to go as a unit. And um, when you think in terms of, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee had a great quote, quote for that about this, uh, being able to deal with situations. And his quote was, if any of you ever heard this about water. He says, water is shapeless and formless. If you pull water into a glass, it becomes a glass. If you pull it into the bottle, it becomes a bottle. Be like water, my friend. That's what you want your people to be like, to be like water. 
And by doing that preparation and planning and thinking about the next crisis, that's what they would be more like to shape, take form, or whatever the crisis comes to deal with. Now, and wrapping up, one of the things I'll tell you is this, anybody can actually lead in good times. Anybody, anytime Dick, Harry, Mary, and Sally can lead when it's good, but when it's not good in a crisis, that's when the good leaders reveal themselves. And I'm gonna use an example. And I wanna use, uh, I know one of the things that uh, I try not to go too much into sometimes because it turns some people off because they didn't play sports, but this is actually a good opportunity. So you didn't need to play sports to get this one. Uh, in team sports, you have the management, the coach, you have a leader, and then you have the team. The manager's job is to promote the vision, the strategy, and design the plays. The leader's job is to lead the team to execute the plays. The team's job is actually to execute their individual task within the play. Everybody has a part to play to make the play successful. Now, where does this all come together? It comes together during practice. In practice, when you practice the plays, you get to see what they're, who's strong, who's weak, who's making mistakes, who's good at this play, who's finding ways to tweak a play, whatever else. That's daily, daily, that's daily practices. What are they practicing for? The game. The game, when they get into the game, they've got their game plan, they got their plays, they've got their strategy, and they get in and they're gonna execute their plays and they're gonna do this to the other team and they're really gonna sock them in the nose and they're gonna score all these points. But what the other team was doing too strategizing for your team. So as a result of getting in that game, those plays that we had and all those great ideas and all those points that we plan on scoring, guess what? We can't do any of it because they hit us with the unknown, things we have never seen before. That's our crisis in the game. What do we do? This is what we do. At halftime, the team goes into the locker room and they're in the midst of the crisis. And they adapt a new blueprint, a new game plan, a new strategy, and new plays to counteract what the other team is doing. They go back after halftime, and then they win the game because they were able to come up with a game plan while they were in the midst of the crisis. In the real world, you have the managers who provide the vision. Corporate America, the working world, the professional world. You have the managers to provide the vision, the strategy, and the goals. You have the leaders who actually execute on the strategy to help accomplish the goals. You have the team, the direct reports, who actually do their individual task to actually help accomplish, to execute the strategy to accomplish the goals. Where does all this come together? Doing the daily routine workday. This is where it all comes together. Now, what are they preparing for? They're preparing for their version of the game. Unbeknownst to them, when the crisis comes, that's their game. Now, they have plans to do all these great things, the stuff that they were doing routine, and it's working really well. A crisis comes, and it upsets the apple cart. Now they're at halftime. They're trying to figure out, what do we do? As a result of taking precautions and implementing steps from the previous crisis, now they come up with a new game plan at halftime, a new strategy, a new plan for success. How do we get out of this? They come out of halftime and they execute their plan. And so now they're dealing with the crisis, but they adjusted to it. So what they decided to do, rather than be totally reactive, they were adaptive. And they were adapting in the crisis while they were in the crisis 
as a result to try to deal with the crisis and overcome the crisis. So as I close, I would like to say this. Crisis leadership is an opportunity for leaders to show their competence, their team building, and all the skills in their repertoire to make an organization successful. Sound the wrong way, but here's an opportunity to shine, to show what you're made of, to show what you can do, what your capabilities are. Some people will overachieve because some people never lead management or whomever never expected they could do it. And some people will underachieve. And the difference is someone who's actually set up some steps, some guidelines to deal with the crisis as the five that I laid out right here. I truly believe these will enable a leader to successfully deal with a crisis when it hits while you're in the crisis and after the crisis and when you're dealing with the new normal. Boom. Rod, this is great stuff. And I wanna ask a couple questions and then open it up for other questions. Are you okay with that? Does that work? John, I couldn't hear there. Go ahead, my speaker. When you, I would like to ask a question. Sure. I see a lot of parallels with the this leadership, as you're talking about, with personally what we're going through when we have our own little mini crisis, we're looking for a job, we're looking for that next opportunity. We got turned down. We feel like it's almost in our, how do we manage ourselves as, as an up and coming leader? Maybe if we're not in that corporate environment, managing your mental mm-hmm. health self during. I, I see a lot of parallels. Could you make a couple more? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and not to be cliche, but Keeping your eye on the prize. What is the objective here? Remember, if your objective is to get here, you may have to go here and deviate a little bit. But ultimately, whatever is your objective, don't forget what it is. Never forget. Here's something I heard a long time ago. Nothing good comes easy. You're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to work towards it, not unless you win the lottery. (laughs) And for some people, that's actually been a a jinx. But you're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to have a game plan in place. I truly believe that what individuals should do is to be the captain of their fate and the master of their own soul when it comes to what it is they're trying to acquire. Remember, I look at it, the only thing that can stop you is you. It's not other people. And if you do allow other people to stop you, that's something you really didn't want in the first place. How do you handle a setback that feels personal to you as a leader or and that could be just getting a no, getting a rejection, getting, you know, and you've been in crisis with like criminals, life and death situation, mm-hmm. ATF. Talk just a little bit more about managing yourself during a crisis. I love this stuff. Well, and here again, I'm going to Mike Tyson said it best. Everybody has a game plan until they get hit. Okay. Once you get hit, what do you do? Do you quit? Or do you step back and say, wait a minute, I did something wrong. I was exposed there. Now, let me step back and look at this. If you get rejection, I actually just had this conversation with someone last week. You got two rejections from two interviews that you got. Now, let me ask you this. What did they tell you? Well, I was told that I didn't have this and I didn't have that. So the way I hear this, you hear this is, I don't have this, I don't have that. The way I hear this as a coach is, they told you what you need to get. Make it happen. Do not sit around here and cry about the things you can't control. Do implement and take a game plan and take initiative and do the things you can take control of. These two companies told you the same thing, that you did not have this. Why don't you get it? Beautiful. 
Sujata asks, how do you communicate to an individual who thinks that they're a leader, but their actions are that of a boss? Who thinks that they're a leader, their actions are that of a boss. Then let the record reflect. It's one thing for you to tell me, but it's another thing for you to show me. In, the army, in law enforcement the army, we always say, it didn't happen if it's not written down. So if someone is actually incompetent and not doing what they're supposed to do, there should be a paper trail. There should be instances, examples. I'm going to sit down with you. I'm not going to tell John O'Connor, John, you know, that you're not cutting the mustard and you're not doing what we need you to do. I'm actually going to sit down with you and I'm going to say, John, uh, let me talk to you about a few things. On March 5th, you and I had a conversation about this right here. We agreed that you were going to do that. You did not get that done. In April, we came back, we talked about this. You were supposed to get this done. You didn't get that done. Here, I'm going to show you exactly what I want you to know. Now, it's one thing for you to refute what I tell you. It's another thing for me to show you in writing or documentation or proof. And I hate to say that you, John, John Felton, evidence, the evidence, let the evidence reflect who you are and what you do. Not my opinion, but what the facts are. All right, my question, and I want to open it up. So unmute after this and please ask, Gerard, give us a situation where you're sitting down and you feel like you're in a personal crisis, either your personal uh, safety's at stake, you're with a criminal. How have you handled one of those? I got to get to a, one of those Gerard stories that I love. Um, it's, a, it's, 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 it's really an army story, I'll give you. We all remember where we were during 9-11. Well, let me tell you where I was during 9-11. I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky. I was teaching a class of senior non-commissioned officers. I'm sorry, mid-level non-commissioned officers in a two-week class for them to get promoted. And I remember my superior, she came to me, she knocked on the door and did like this. I went to the door and she said, hey, just so you know, um, someone's had a horrible accident and flew into the World Trade Center. I'm like, really? She's like, yes, I just wanted you to know. I go back to my class. I have some instructors up there working. And I'm in the back of the class. She comes back and she does this again. She says, that wasn't an accident. We're under attack. Another plane just hit the, the next tower. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're under attack. And I remember everything happened. So I had to go back and be cool and calm. But as a result, at the end of that day, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. So I was 45 minutes away from Fort Knox. So I was driving home. As I got home, I'm watching the news and everything's going on. And at the time, I'm also an ATF agent. So I'm a special agent with the U.S. Justice Department. And so I'm contacting my agency to find out, do I need to come off active duty to come back and work or what? And they says, no, just be advised that we may call you or active duty back because we may send you somewhere. So I said, okay. Finally, the next day, I get up and I go back to Fort Knox. When I get to Fort Knox, I could not get to the post because I'm a mile away. Traffic was backed up. Nobody could get in the gate. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? Uh, we don't know. We just can't get in the gate. Uh, so I asked my way up to talk to somebody that, that would knew what, know what was going on. And he says, listen, he says, man, I apologize. And I said, well, before you say anything, I said, do you know there's doctors and nurses and cafeteria workers? and the trash disposal people, all these civilians, none of them can get in. They're all out here, as well as some of us essential soldiers who have to go back in there. He said, we can't let you in. I'm like, what, what do you mean? Crisis mode, people. He says, they're scrambling. They don't know what to do. So what do you mean they don't know what to do? He says, 
Every 15 minutes, we get someone calls down to the gate to tell us to do something. And then five minutes after we get that call, somebody else calls and says, don't do it, do something else. So they're so screwed up at the gate, they don't know who to let in. I said, but do you understand? Everybody who works in the hospital are all out here. They're civilians. He's like, we can't let anybody in. And that was my first time realizing, John, to see crisis management fall flat on its face. When I finally did get in two days later, I actually was able to talk to my superiors. And so here's what we found out. It was so bad, the commanding general from Fort Knox held a meeting with his command staff. And he says, I gave explicit orders to do this. And he went, John O'Connor, I told you to get this done. My number two, what did you do? John O'Connor got the information and he altered it to cover his rear end. And then he told Bruce what to do. Bruce got it and he altered it to cover his rear end. Bruce told Michelle. Michelle got it and she altered it to cover her rear end. And she told Dylan. Dylan called the gate and told him and he altered it to cover his rear end. And Sherry's at the gate trying to figure out what in the heck are they doing? And it was one of those things. And I was like, wait a minute. So not only did they not have a plan, people went into that mode, survival mode. It's like, I've got to protect me because this is going to blow up really bad. And they altered it. It was, it was unbelievable what they actually did. And as a result, we use it as a training guide when I was teaching senior non-commissioned officers. Let me show you in crisis management mode what you do not do. Excellent. All right. Questions from the group. I know a couple people have them. Uh, I love this stuff. Bruce, you like the sports analogies. You're okay with that. Steve, what, what you got? Yeah, thanks, Joe. I really, really enjoyed listening to that. Um, I mean, a few things jump out, really, you know, comments as, as much as questions. It's funny, your last statement I wrote earlier on, CYA, because that's exactly, for me, that's what's happening in so much of these situations is that that's what people are doing. Right? That's why things get handled poorly. The, you know, the mm -hmm. transparency, the updates, be visible and be, and be present. I remember vividly the Deepwater Horizon, right? The guy who, what was he, the, the British guy who led BP, was ended up, he was fishing somewhere because he had to get out of there. Like there was some kind of, yeah. you know, it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous how these things are, are not handled. Um, and I think it, so much of, what I'm hearing, and I think this isn't a corporate world as, as, as much as anything, is preparing for the future requires an, an investment in, in the future. And it kind of unfortunately runs counterculture to so much of you know, what happens in, in corporate America, where the focus is on the next quarter, the focus is on here and now, uh, and, and responding rather than thinking, getting, getting out ahead and truly mm -hmm. investing for the future, which is why you know, the state of our infrastructure in this country is so abysmal. And it's not, nobody's going to invest in infrastructure until we have a major bridge collapse like they did in Italy, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, right? And it's, it's that that kind of continues to worry me. And, and I think, um, you know, what we saw during COVID, what we saw during Katrina, I mean, you, you, you name it, right? And I, I guess my question at the end of all of that is, will we ever learn? There, there are plenty of people out there who do what you do. There are plenty of courses you know, masters in crisis management. Yeah, I don't, often we don't see it implemented and actually executed. 
in in real life? And you know, and mm-hmm. will we ever learn? I guess is the question. Well, someone who's been in a war before, and someone who's actually I was actually at Hurricane Katrina as a federal agent for thirty days. Here's what. I actually, I gave this information to my students last week in one of my classes, Homeland Security classes at the university. And I told them this. Here's what I can tell you when my careers and my organization's missions were complicated. I said, it's not the fact that we didn't have a mission. It wasn't defined. It's not the fact that we didn't have a strategy. And it's not the fact that we could not, do we not have capabilities or competencies to do it. Politicians got involved. You put politicians and bureaucrats in the middle of things. I no longer work for the government. I no longer work for the military. These are things I could not say back then. I can say now. It is extremely difficult to get things done because if it's something that does not fit in with their political narrative or their agenda, it is not happening. And that is what you find many times on these large scales, particularly with national initiatives when we talk about infrastructure or things along, because there is somebody that can find a way to politicize it or block it because it's not something that they want because it's not within consistent with their political narrative. So will we ever learn? Uh, the answer to that question, I think we will learn. I don't think it's going to help anything in a lot of instances. Now, when you talk about organizations or whatever else, even organizational cultures and politics can actually be the same, have the same crippling effect when it comes to endeavors or something you're trying to do, uh, large corporations. Uh, I, what I used to do, there's a term I wasn't familiar with prior to coaching and working with it, corporate culture. Gentlemen, I'm well briefed in it now. After coaching clients for the last two years and working with leaders, and professionals, it is something, and I did not realize how counterproductive it could be. But yes, so to answer your question, when I've seen these things not work, the reason they don't work is people, and it's usually politics of bureaucracy. Gerard, that's a great answer. How do you? Sh- how important is it to show? Because you've talked, and you're you can be tough, and you can get out there, and you can stand on the front lines. But you've also shown me in a lot of examples, and because we know each other, a lot of empathy for people that are going through crisis. How do you show that empathy? Because that's one thing sometimes the politicians, others lack when it comes to individual people and leaders sometimes get so frazzled and hair on fire, they forget to kind of take a breath and show empathy. How do you show empathy? What's a good example of that? Because that's something to look for in a culture too, isn't it? Well, it is. It's, and this to me, this is now, this is going back to my, my values of how I was raised, uh, Here's the one thing I used to always teach people, when the leaders, the senior military leaders that I trained. I'm like, make a decision, a factual decision based on good data. Do your due diligence. And at the end of the day, ask yourself this. Did I make a decision that was fair? If the answer is that you have to think about it or is no, you made the wrong decision. And a lot of times that involves the gray areas, not the black and white. The people side of things. Okay, you know, why, you know, don't tell me she's a bad soldier. Tell me why she's a bad soldier. And you'd be shocked how many times people couldn't tell you that. Well, has anybody talked to her to figure out what was going on? Well, in this particular case, nobody did. And so they send her to me and says, listen, and this is exactly how I was told. If you can't fix her, we're throwing her out of the army. That's exactly how I was told. 
So when she comes to me, the first thing I did is I said, I want you to forget about this rank, forget about this U.S. Army, and let's just man and woman. Let's just talk. Tell me about you. What's going on with you? Let me get to know you. Here's what I found out. The girl was a single parent because her husband was in prison. She was working two part-time jobs, had no benefits. She did not have enough. She did not make enough money to stay anywhere. So she was either looking at either trying to get on welfare. Now she's an Army Reserve now, either welfare or trying to find a full-time job with benefits or trying to find somewhere to live. But she couldn't concentrate on getting to work on time, and she couldn't concentrate on work when she got there. So as a result, when I sat down, we have our staff meeting with the, with the, with the command staff. This is what I explained. I said, listen, I've had three people come and tell me this. I had you people come and tell me this is her third strike, and she's on the way out. But not one person could tell me what was the problem. I said, now let me enlighten you to what this person is dealing with. She's got a life issue she's dealing with. She's got a life issue she's dealing with. And until that's dealt with, she can't concentrate on this. So we reached out and we got her a counselor through the military and somebody worked with her. Ultimately, within, within the next 45 days, she was able to get a full-time job with benefits to actually take care of her and her daughter. She actually got a job where she actually made enough money to be able to afford an apartment. And guess what we saw at work? We saw tremendous improvement with that in performance. She was night and day. She became someone who's like, you know what? We think we may want to promote her within the next year if this continues. I said, I don't see why it wouldn't because the things that was prohibiting her from doing it have been addressed. That's awesome. All right, comments, questions. Dana, what do you think about this? Great stuff, huh? Yeah, I think it's fabulous. Uh, you know, I never really thought about job search kind of being a crisis for some people, but it, it can feel that way. You know, you mm -hmm. feel out of control, uncertainty, uh, scrambling to do something throughout the day that you feel is productive, may or may not be your micromanaging yourself. Uh, so I really picked up on that word, uh, micromanagement in a job search or, uh, way, mm -hmm. because I think of people, and John will tell you too, that, um, you know, I think there's a tendency unless they've been through the career pro coaching program, there's a tendency for people to just kind of act arbitrarily and blindly apply online, scramble, micromanage, make sure the document's perfect, da 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 da, da rather than at, at the beginning of the job search, rather than just kind of blanket opportunities, get referred in, network, expand the network. Don't worry too much about the minute details at that point. Only worry about those details once you get an interview lined up. Then you want to micromanage all the little details, I believe. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, the corollary there is really strong between what you're saying, Gerard, crisis management and really responding to that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Michelle, what do you yes. think about this? You're former military. I think uh, I can relate to a lot of the things that he uh, discussed. And um, I mean, military for women is a challenge in itself. Yes. And, um, you know, I went through some good and bad times. Um, I spent about 10 years in the Air Force and um, in reserves. You know, in hindsight, I kind of wish I would have stayed in. Um, you know, because, you know, you get out of the military as a, as a non-commissioned officer and 
there's no transition into the workforce for you. Um, the, you know, a lot of the jobs just don't translate into the civilian world. So, and I have found that out um, even now, trying to look for a job and the frustrations and trying to change careers. And uh, it's very challenging. And so I have my own crisis, if you will. Um, because it's like, you know, I'm telling myself, am I, am I not employable, you know, and all these other things. So I can, I can relate to a lot of things that you're talking about on that. Thank you, Michelle. Tony, good stuff as we, we really wrap up and then, you know, one or two more comments and we'll wrap, wrap. Um, like this, Tony. Gerard, that was, that was awesome. Outstanding. I loved it. Um, very, very good. Uh, to me, I'm, I'm in agreement with everything. Uh, I would say that the, the three biggest things that I would do, well, first of all, in my opinion, the crisis is solved before it happens with, with preparation in advance, right? The policies, the procedures, all the things mm -hmm. that you fall back on when, when you're not knowing what to do. But to me, the, the three most important things are staying calm, positive, and factual in, in those situations. If I could ask really quickly, uh, Gerard, how, if, if you find yourself in a situation, oh no, I'm not prepared, uh, I'm in the middle of the crisis, and you're, you're behind the eight ball, you are playing catch up or uh, clean up to, to the issue, what do you do then? You find yourself unprepared or you're, you, you know, your back's against the wall. I didn't mean to be here, I'm here. How do you get yourself out of that hole besides stop digging? Look. There is something that happened to me when I was in the Bosnian War, a situation that I was in. Had it gone bad, I wouldn't be here talking to y'all now because uh, it could have gone extremely bad. But uh, I can't go into all the details, but what I can tell you is this. I had to make a life or death situation potentially call. And I had to make a call that was not, a call that was not sanctioned by the U.S. Army. But it was a call that I had to make in the midst of a potentially heated situation, not potentially, a heated situation, a situation to save men and women soldiers, as well as myself. Uh, when I had to do this, this is one of the situations where I, I was in communication with the higher ups. And they were not telling me, they were not giving me an action, but they were really telling me to stand by. I was not in a situation where I had the liberty, the opportunity, the luxury to stand by. And I've got a bunch of soldiers out here in a convoy who, or really feeling the pressure and the pain right about now, and it's getting worse. And after the second time I reached out to them, I get this, I was told the same thing. What I did, Anthony, as I said, I have to make it, make it based on my knowledge and my skills and my training and my competence, I have to make the best decision that I can, and I'm gonna have to live with it. I'm gonna have to live with this. Remember, failing to make a decision is making a decision. And I said, what I have to do is make this decision. And I got to make sure, my God, it's got to be the right one. I was able to make a decision, get everybody in a manner of speaking to an action that was actually safe, that was not part of what the Army had planned for us to do. I deviate totally from the Army plan. But after I did it, every was safe, every piece of equipment was safe, and nobody was injured. I was told by one of my soldiers after I did that, he says, thank God I was with you. And I says, what do you mean? He says, some of your peers could not have made that decision that you made, but you saved.
you saved us by making that decision. He said, I am so glad I was with you on this day. When I got back to my post, I was actually told by a higher up that you did an excellent thing and you made a great call. However, and Michelle, you can identify this. If it had gone wrong, we were prepared to fry you. That's the predicament that I was in. And that's the decision I had. I had to, it was making it, not making a decision was not an option. And that's what, when it comes to crisis management sometimes, not making a decision is not an option. Five steps for crisis leadership. There you have it, Gerard King. Awesome stuff.